So one thing about technology, um, I want to say this. I'm, I'm talking about identity. I'm an instructor, and so I believe you have to go from theory into practice, right? So instead of just jumping immediately into, like, this is what you do, let's look at the theory behind this. And so in the work that I wrote on Let's Play Church, I, I, I talk about how technology is bigger than, like, what we see in the world. So it's bigger than augmented reality. It's bigger than artificial intelligence. It's bigger than social media. It's bigger than computers. I want to argue that technology, especially for us as black and brown people, is us. I believe that black technique has to be looked at as technology. And I'm a big Afrofuturist. Um, I used to be closeted about it, but I'm not any longer. For example, this image was made with artificial intelligence and it's based upon some of the leading Afrofuturist artists. Afrofuturism speaks to this disembodied, ambiguous blackness that really connects us back to the diaspora. And so I believe that looking at, looking at us as black and brown people, we have to interchange technology and technique, which is why you see me wearing the shirt, black is tech. Black and brown people, the word technology is really just the tools that are used to change a culture. Technique are the strategic ways in which we change it. Technology is just the tools that we use to change a culture. Technique is the strategy we use to change it. And I believe the relationship between blackness and technology has been so complicated. So I think we have to redefine technology and look at ourselves in the mirror, black and brown people. We are some of the most innovative individuals that God has ever put into this world. And what's happened is the reason we are so creative, we are so innovative that what the world has done has literally tried to chain us down. And before they chain us down, they try to take all the culture and the innovation out of us and then chain us down by then them taking what they take from us and monetizing who we are. The Underground Railroad is one of the most innovative things you can ever think of. Who in their right mind begins to put together how you can get from one city to another by pricking uh, sticks on trees, by making sure you have different realms of communication? The first movement of Facebook was our ancestors on the Underground Railroad how they communicated through language, how they communicated through a larger spirit to navigate from bondage to safety. No, that was innovative and tech. That was a new form of technique. And what happened is the world took it, put money to it, and called it something else, spirituals and freedom songs. The Black Wall Street on Tulsa, Oklahoma, the founding of historically black colleges and universities, the Montgomery bus boycott, Black Lives Matter, were all emancipatory technologies that created frameworks for success. And then TikTok came, and then Facebook came, and all they did was take our dances, take our culture, take our pace, take our rhythm, and white folk put some money to it. We have had a knack to survive and create effective goods and services at any cost. I want to reframe technology. So please don't throw yourself away from this conversation. Please don't exempt yourself from this conversation because you are technology. You are an innovator, a dreamer, a doer. You have a space now to play with and understand that because I, I'm not going to let who I am be monetized by people who aren't me. There's no boundary in my identity in Christ to be practiced. And white folk have taken blackness and monetized blackness and called it dancing. White folk have taken blackness and monetized us and said, you can play basketball, but you can't own the team. They've taken who we are. You can play football, but we're going to tell you when and when you can play. We'll have an owner's meeting, and we'll put one person over the players' association that looks like you, but all the owners and the coaches don't look 
like you. So sustainable income does not come through you. You can kill your body and have CTE. You can kill your body and be injured and have a maximum of, did you know the average athlete has a four-year career, which is why the most renewals of contracts happen in the fifth year? Did you know that most basketball players have a three-year career, which is why the renewal of a rookie contract comes at the third year? Because we'll drive you black bodies into the ground while we make sustainable income off of you. So I think we got to look at tech as well. We got to look at sustainable income for our communities. But I think a reason a lot of us get frustrated, even right now, as you listen to me about change and new things and technology, it's like you're not looking to listen. You're looking to make sure, oh, this is another way Pastor Justin doesn't like people. No, that's not it. I think the reason we get averse to change, and that goes to church, to our jobs, to our relationships, to our homes, to our community, is because really what Scripture is going to show us today is we're, a lot of us are just really unhappy and happy with who you are and happy where life has got you and happy with the hand that life has given you. And that displaced frustration, instead of dealing with something, has gone towards being displaced and being frustrated with other people. We see it at work. Your job begins to accelerate. And so instead of sitting here, how can I work on the project? How can I work with these individuals? How can I work with who they're hiring? No, it's only good when I do something. No, I'll show up and help with the project when it's good for me. I'll show up to work when I decide to show up to work. We will do it my way or the highway. And we begin to, when it, that's just at work. And so when things begin to evolve at work, how dare you use AI? How dare you use these different things? How dare you change the hours of our workspace? We fight it because we're frustrated because we can't figure certain things out. Or we're too big to ask questions. Can I tell you your worst enemy? Your worst enemy is not a person. Your worst enemy is your arrogance and self-control. Ooh, that was so good. That was, that was, that was so good. Y'all can look at me like I'm crazy if you want to. I said, your worst enemy is not somebody else. It's your arrogance and your self-control. We see it at work. We see it in our homes. We see it at church. God only shows up when so-and-so preaches. What? God only shows up when I sing. God only shows up when I serve. God only shows up when so-and-so. God, let me tell you, God does not decide when or not he comes to his house. You're in his house. But here's the difference, and I want to acknowledge the difference between that is because you prayed before that worship. You missed the fellowship with certain individuals. You cursed certain individuals because that's why you didn't like them. I, I will never hear God through so-and-so because you cursed them. I will never hear God through so-and-so because you don't like them. But then when your friend is up here or your friend is serving, your friend's on the screen, now everything's okay. No, it's the same thing we go home. Home is better when I cook. No, because you prepared. You put something into it. No, home is not better just when you cook. Home is better because you showed up. The car ride is better with my music. No, the car ride is better because you put a piece of yourself into your family. The vacation is better when I plan. No, the vacation is better because you showed up. Maybe the challenge is finding who we are and naming our frustration so that we can build our work, we can build our churches, we can build our homes and see who we are. What is the barrier that you have to loving who you are? What is the barrier that you have to loving Jesus Fully, every notion of Jesus, as God continues to unveil himself, we really hate change. So what happens is we demonize the change instead of engaging with my own lack of adaptability. So let's talk about this tech stuff and grab your Bibles and go to Psalm number 8. And I want to talk about identity. 
And after we talk about identity, that I'm going to show us some stuff on artificial intelligence, my hope and prayer is to help us with some apps and some things like that that I'm loving. I just refuse to do it by myself. I really want to empower our people. Go to Psalm number 8, and let's play church this morning. I hope you're ready to engage with me. Psalm 8, beginning of verse number 1, and we'll read for today for this service, verses 1 through 4, and next service, verses 5 through 9. I taught this text in Bible study last year. I want to take a deeper dive into this text. It'll be a lot of fun. Psalm 8 says these words, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory in the heavens to the praise of children and infants. You've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set into place, what is man? that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them. You may be seated. What is man? That you are mindful, human beings, that you care. I want to ask you two questions this morning to begin our sermonic conversation. Who are you and what are you doing here? Who are you and what are you doing here? Life is this ever-evolving movement to understand and discern oneself. And as we keep moving forward, I want you to answer not just those two questions, but a couple other questions. Like, number one, who are you in relationship to God? Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. He brought them to them and said, who do people say that I am? They began to have all these words. Well, some say you're this, and some say you're this, and some say you're this, and some say you're Elijah. And they all had these things. They had a whole conversation. Some say you're this and this. Everybody had a name for God. And then God, Jesus said, hold on, who do you say that I am? What is your name for God? When Jesus asks you, who do you say that I am? Don't tell me what everybody else says, but who do you say that I am? Who are you, and who is God to you? Here's three things I want to tell you and teach you this morning. Number one, we are under God, but deeply loved by God. We are under God, but deeply loved by God. Number two, we are equal to others, but we choose to serve. We are equal to others, but we choose to serve. Number three, we are over creation as caretakers and not consumers. Let me break this down for us, and I hope this is helpful. This, this is how the text breaks down. Number one, verses 1a and verse number 9 teaches this piece about Jesus, that God is excellent. We're going to see here, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verses 1a and verse number 9 tell us the same thing. Verse number 2 is going to teach us perfect praise. Verses 3 through 4, we'll talk about next service, how God cares about everything. Verses 5 through 8, next service, how God's calling for us with everything. And then we'll end again with God is excellent. And if we're going to find our place in the world, if we're going to understand identity in the world, we're going to try to answer that question, who are you? What are you doing here? Because God is excellent. We can give him perfect praise. God cares about everything, and there's something he's calling us to do with it. So let's walk through this text this morning. Psalm 8 is a continuation of Psalm 3 through 7. And you see the beginning of the text in your Bibles more than likely said it was written upon the Giddith. Being written upon the Giddith is more than likely a flute that the Hittite guards marched to in 2 Samuel chapter 15, which probably means it was a musical performance that was according to a tune of that name derived from the word gath or wine press, which denotes a tune that has some rhythm to it that's going to bring joy. So it's coming from the Gittith from the gath. It's a tune of a wine press. The wine of that time is going to do one thing. It's going to bring you joy. So when they say it was written to play to the tune of a giddith, this psalm was written to a 
playful, a joyful tune. And all the psalms with this prefix on it, Psalm 8, Psalm 81, and Psalm 84, are all joyful psalms. And so what the psalmist does is he begins to vent out loud how much he loves all that God creates. And here's what he calls what God created. He says God's creation is, verse number two, I believe, God's manifested perfection. And what he does is by venting out to God, but all that God created, he is celebrating God's authority. And he is celebrating that God has literally manifested perfection. I don't want us to miss that. That God, out of God's hands did not come a mistake. God manifested in the earth perfection. And what God called us to do is to manage perfection. Glory to God. And so what David comes along is he celebrates the authority of God, one, to even create perfection. Then he celebrates that God calls him to manage what God has created. And then he celebrates that God, even after we fell in the garden, still wants us to manage God's perfection. The fact that you are living and moving and having your being is a place to rejoice because God, in spite of all of your fallen nature of sin, is trusting you to manage the gift you that God gave into this world. As we believe this text was written by David at night, how do we know this was written by David at night? Well, we see this, how David, we believe, was in a field at night because the stars for David were like theater. And we can surmise this because in Psalm 6, it was also written at night because David found comfort with God at night, Psalm 42. David saw that morning moments and joyful moments were for him found in the presence of God under the stars at night. Here's the first question I want to raise to you this morning. Where do you feel the most connected with God? Like, I really want you to think about this, whether that's morning, whether that's night. I can tell you, like, hey, listen, I want you to study Scripture in the morning. You don't feel connected with God in the morning. I can tell you to study Scripture at night. You don't feel connected with God at night. Maybe you feel connected with God as you're working out. Maybe you feel connected to God when you're driving. Where do you feel the most connected with God that your words to God are the first things out? God, thank you for trusting me with what you've given me to manage your manifested perfection. For some of you, it's not church. For some of you, it's home, it's your car, it's working out, it's running, it's, it's at night, it's in the morning, it's in the middle of the night. When is the best time you connect with God? Do that. And here's what you learn in that moment. The first thing David says, he says, oh, Lord, verse 1, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Let me work, this, let me work through these words. He uses two words. He says, number one, oh, Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai. It's two different words there. Over the course of time, they added it to Lord, Lord, because they didn't want to say Yahweh. But the Hebrew there is Yahweh, Adonai. And see, this relationship with David that David had with God birthed him to give God two different words. One that speaks of God's general nature, and the second that speaks of his personal relationship with God. Yahweh, Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he says, because I have that relationship with you, because I'm acknowledging your creative ability, Father. He then says, God, here's why I acknowledge and love you. God has set his glory above the heavens. Yeah. So what the text is teaching us here is that many scholars believe that this text was corrupted here, like writing out the name of Yahweh because they didn't want to say it. But mainly what David is showing us here is that it is impossible to name the glory of God. 
to look at the Hebrew of this text, the Hebrew of this text puts it like this. To God whose glory stretches over the heavens. Um, so he says God's glory is so non-quantifiable, that non-qualifiable, that instead of me, hear me, trying to figure out God's glory, I thank God that his glory stretches beyond my imagination. Let me tell you this. God is not recluded to my language about God. So God's glory deserves praise. And so what David is using here is the biggest language he could use. It's like the book of Jonah. When Jonah, when Jonah got, bought the ticket to go to Tarshish, what Jonah was doing was he was going to what they believed was the other side of the world. Because for them, they thought the furthest they could go was Tarshish. Well, yeah, it was Tarshish. So he bought a ticket to go to the other side of the world. For David, northern Palestine was the farthest that he could think of. So he says, God, you are so amazing. Your glory stretches beyond my language. Is God bigger than your language? Or is God only as big as what you think about God? Is God bigger than your praise? Or is God only as big as a song you listen to, as a sermon? If God is only as big as what you think, we serve a small God. Did you know you only really have access about 15% of your brain? And you really think that God is as big as 15% of your brain? David says, God, you are so massive that I thank you that you don't sit to the small minds of my vocabulary, but thank you that you are bigger than my imagination. You are bigger than my past. Your glory is bigger than anything I've ever gone through because you are bigger than my vocabulary. I don't want a God who's only as good as what I've learned in the dictionary. I don't want a God who's only as good as the school I went to. I don't want a God who's only as good as the college my parents could afford. I don't want a God who's only as good as student loans. But I'm so glad I serve a powerful, non-quantifiable, bigger than my vocabulary. That's how you got over cancer. That's how you got through that pain. That's how you healed your, God healed your body because God is bigger than your vocabulary. He says, oh, Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth? How majestic is it? Your glory stretches over the heaven. So then because I know that, verse 2 gets me. Look at what verse 2 says. So because of that truth, through the praise of children and infants, you have established, hallelujah, a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and silence the avenger. I'll give you the New Living Translation. You've taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and those who oppose you. I'll give you the English Standard Version. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Berean Study Bible. From the mouths of children and infants, you've ordained praise on account of your adversaries to silence the enemy and the avenger, those of you so holy, King James Bible, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. Let me tell you this. Your enemies are not yours. They're God's. So what do you do? You tell of God's strength. That's the text. Because God is mighty against his enemies. The reason you are fighting so much is because you don't trust God to win. 
I ain't scared of none of y'all this morning. So you over here fighting, and God says, that's mine, because the enemy is not a person. It's your insecurity personified. So you are fighting what you feel inferior to, God, because you don't trust that you can do what God tells you to do in this text. God says, how do you overcome every enemy? You give God perfect praise. That's it. Now, some of you are really quiet to me this morning, and I knew this coming into this, because, ooh, baby, you like fighting. Ooh, you like it. I mean, you, ooh, baby, you like it. You, you show up to work ready to fight. Show up to church ready to fight. Go home ready to fight. Go to work tomorrow ready to fight. Right now, you even think about your, your to-do list. Ain't your to-do list. Your to-do list is your to-fight list. Who am I going to fight this week? I better show them who I am. I got to control them because your worst enemy is not a person. It's your arrogance and your self-control. So what do we do? We go back before money came into our lives. We go back before sin came into our lives. We go back to when we trusted Jesus. We see here, where does perfect praise come from? God says, forget the adults. Send me those children. That's why Jesus said, I want to build the kingdom of heaven. How do I build it? Jesus says, send me the children. Because the adults are so consumed with how they make money off me, they forgot me. Send me the children. The adults are so consumed with how they do things with my name. They don't trust my name. Send me the children. I want to talk to the inner child in all of you because a child is more capable than you think. We exist. You were created to do one thing, Colossians 3, to glorify God. We were created to praise God. Children praise God with a pure heart from a pure place. And God's glory says that I don't want the adults praise. Send me the children. Because they're grateful for creation. Because they know that if it's not for their parents, they don't live. Send me the children. They're grateful for life because they know that if their parents don't give it to them, they won't live. Do you trust your heavenly parent? This word here, the word that he says, out of the mouths of children, the Hebrew there is the word mumbling. So he says, out of the incomprehensible language of babies, God gains the most glory. Why? Because they were suckling onto God. The word there in the text, children from one to three Hebraic women were accustomed to suckle their children for a long time. It was a unique dependence on the child had on the mother that the child knows, I won't live unless I'm close to the heart of my parent. So from those mouths who trust their parent, from those mouths, those pure mouths, those dependent mouths, those careful mouths, that God says, here's what I do to people who praise me from a pure dependent place. God says, I will create a fortress around you that your enemies will never find the key to. Oh, oh, my God. God says, I have chosen you that when you give me glory from a pure place, I will make a fortress, Psalm 91, around you so that your enemies can come in. And if your enemy tries to get close, I will put them to shame. That's the Bible. I'm, whew, and that's why Jesus quotes this in Matthew, that God says, I want people who are pure and dependent that praise me because your only trust is not in a person. It's in God. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, God, I praise you because you've hidden things, but you've revealed them to the children. Yeah. Whew. 
Matthew 21. Don't you hear what these children are saying? They said, yes, from the mouths of children, God has called forth your praise. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Is that the reason we don't want kids to worship with us in this church? Is that the reason we got to kick them out the church? Is that the reason we want to make sure children don't hear the gospel, don't teach that, put it in Bible study, don't engage this? Because if we ever were to elicit the perfect praise of children, maybe they'll show us that they'll praise harder than any of the adults will because we love the name of Jesus when Jesus does something for us. Jesus says, not Justin, Jesus says in Matthew 11, you don't understand what I'm doing because you want to do it and you've forgotten to trust the one who knows everything. Jesus said, I created everything. Don't tell me how to be Jesus because I created you in the first place. So maybe you ought to give me glory in season and out of season. Maybe you ought to give me praise in season and out of season because I've got this thing figured out. So what does he want? Unique dependence on him like a child. That hear this, you are able to pull something from God and speak boldly about God. So my question for you, church, this morning is how dependent are you on God? No, seriously, how dependent are you on God? Are you more dependent on who you were, who you were at one point in your life? Are you more dependent on your reputation? Are you more dependent on your bank account? Are you more dependent on what people know about you, what they think about you? Are you more in tune with what people think about you that you don't even know who you are, that you are living a lie because you're more in tune with what people think about you, that you've forgotten the one who created you in the first place? Where does your trust lie? Does your trust lie in the opinions of people? Let me tell you something. You're standing on shaky ground. Does your trust lie in what people think about you? If I post this or put this up, how popular I get? Let me tell you something. I work in tech. And let me tell you this. All we do is change the algorithm, baby, that I'll change who you see to make you feel better or more insecure about you because all social media and newspaper and mass media has done has promulgated a system to make sure that we profit off of your insecurity. So if you trust what people think about you, it's literally because somebody wrote a code to show you things, to buy things, to keep you insecure. But your perfect praise does not come from someone's opinion. Your perfect praise comes from the one who knit you and called you fearfully and wonderfully made, who called you out of your mother's bosom, who knew you before you were born and called you to the nations. I'm talking to people in the building. The reason that life is so difficult is because you're running in the wrong lane. I, I read this book years ago called Leading from the Sandbox. And it talked about this, this notion, this piece called the theology of play. And that's where I rooted my research in on gamification. And what they suggested in Leading from the Sandbox is that leaders in Christian spaces much, must have a place where they invite church people to come into the sandbox. And in the sandbox, you have boundaries, but you're building something. You're always, and the purpose of the leader it's to stand on the outside of the sandbox and say, listen, don't, 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 me- you, you cannot mess up because you're building something in the sandbox. The worst thing you can do is stop being creative. That was life in the, in the sandbox. And I find it interesting that we tell children to play in the sandbox, but we tell adults to leave recess. We take more time, Edison, off of recess. <laughs> we take time off of recess for our children. But we want them to be creative. 
<laughs> we take time from the play of our children. But then in order for them to play, you got to send them to really expensive Montessori schools. And expensive schools, so they gotta only, it's only privileged for a certain segment of people who have a certain amount of income. We tell them, play, but now we're taking recess away. But then when you become a CEO, when you're leading people, get back in the sandbox. Maybe the reason we don't know how to build things is we killed creativity as a child. And I ain't got to go to school. That trauma, that divorce that your parents had, yeah, that, that killed your creativity. That pain inside of church, yeah, that, mm, that, that killed your creativity. Because you know what? We stopped growing at the place of our greatest trauma. Oh, I'm talking good today. I said we stopped growing at the place, so many of us in the room, you're 40, but you're really 14. You're 70, but you're really 12. Because you were stripped from the sandbox of your childhood when your parents said, I'm getting divorced. You were stripped from the sandbox when you walked in on your father cheating on your mother. You were stripped from the sandbox when you saw your, your family overdose on something. You were stripped from the sandbox when your uncle invited you into that back room at the family reunion and said, this is a rite of passage, that you stopped growing at the place of your greatest trauma. That happens in church as well. A pastor did this. A meeting went this way. Some of us have not grown since 1977. Some of us have not grown since 2001 here at Friendship. Some of us have not grown since 2018 because the great trauma that happened even in these four walls made you say, I've got to get back to something. Can I tell you something? The good old days are the gone old days. Huh. Because your trauma is telling you like an addiction, you've got to get back. But I say this all the time. Nostalgia is a great place to visit. It's a terrible place to live. Because nostalgia says, let's get back before the trauma happened, instead of trusting that God can still heal you in spite of all the trauma that happened. God says, do you really want freedom? Do you want a fortress that your enemies can't get into? Do you want strength that you, don't, you know you can't handle so all you can do is worship? Then he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your walk with Jesus as a child. I want you to think about your walk with Jesus as a kid. What made you say yes to Jesus the first time? I really want to ask you this. What, what made you say yes to Jesus the first time? What drew you to Jesus the first time? It's in that wonder I want to leave this sermon with you because that is perfect praise. That's the moment you said yes and didn't care what anyone else said about you. That's the moment you said yes to Jesus. I could care less about all the no's in your life. When you said yes to Jesus the first time, before anyone else told you what you had to do, all you cared was I've got to get to Jesus. I want you to pursue and praise God from an honest space, from that praise. And from that praise, God will give you strength. From that praise, God will silence your enemies. Because your identity in Jesus starts with trusting him as the one who made you. So how do you do that, Pastor Justin? Very quickly, quit disliking who you were as a child. No, 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 I know. Like, you know, let me tell you this. I, like, the one thing about me, I, I'm, I'm not afraid to share my story. I was a pudgy kid. I went to an all-white school. 
and oh man, I, I hated, I was, one kid told me in school, we were finishing basketball practice, he said, you look like an alien because you're so fat from the side. And I was like, you know what? For years I told myself, I must be an alien because I'm so ugly, I'm so fat, I'm so stupid. I thought my parents' divorce was my fault. I walked in on my father cheating on my mother. In fourth grade, the sixth grade, sorry, sixth grade, I can tell you the day and the time. I walked in and I said, whose car is that? And you know what happened? I came to church that Sunday and the musician's car was in the parking lot. And it was the same car that was at my house on that Thursday. You talk about, Pastor Justin, do you have a story? Yes. Oh, yeah, I can tell you the day, the time. My father made me uh, shovel the entire driveway of our eight-car uh, driveway with no coat on because he was mad. I decided to come home from school while he decided to commit adultery. And he, he blamed me for their divorce. He blamed me for the stuff he did against my mother. I had to heal from the place where I thought my parents divorced, my childhood, my knees, my problems with church. I hated church. I, the worst thing I wanted to do was pastor people because I saw what a pastor did. So when I'm told, pastor, you're not this, you don't do this. No, baby, I've seen some terrible pastors. I lived with one. Don't tell me I don't know what this thing is. I lived with one. But I had to heal from the place where I had to quit disliking who I was, because I wasn't the cause, your sin was. And what my father did and what life did was steal your curiosity by telling you who you were without giving you a chance to learn who you were. I'm talking to people in the building. I want you to quit disliking. And let me say this. I swear if somebody uses that story against me, you will see a side of me you don't want to see. I'm still healing from that. I hope we are a space where we can heal people and not wield their stories against people. Someone say yes. I swear, that's a part of me that I don't know why that came out, but because I'm showing myself today, I hope that you trust your story the way I'm trusting a hard part of my own story. That's why I take this pastoring thing so serious. That's why I give my own resources to make sure that you, that's why I, everything for Membership Appreciation Month, Pastor Justin personally purchases to not tax the church because I've seen pastors tax them. I lived with one. So please don't throw that in my face. But I hope we can heal other people who have similar experiences, who've had their life and their childhood stripped from them because of people who were insecure in themselves. I want you to quit disliking who you were. Your parents' divorce is not your fault. You, you, the, the, the loss of that school, that school shutting down, that house shutting down, that church falling apart is not your fault. Quit disliking who you were. Number two, deny the desire for recognition. You know this, my praise recognizes God, and the moment I get off focus on God, and the moment I get more focused on me, is the moment I have taken light from the giver of light. Yeah, perfect praise is focused on God. So let me ask you a question. It's always a who behind the what. So who are you waiting on to tell you that you're successful? You know, humble people never tell you they're humble. You ever notice that? Like, humble people don't go around like, I'm humble. No, that, that's, that, that's arrogance, right? Like, who are you waiting on? And a lot of us, the reason we cannot see how that God is a great parent that desires us to be children is because we're desiring recognition from parents that they never gave you. So your feeling of inferiority has caused you to lead children, create more generational bondage that can be stopped. How? By you praising God from childlike wonder. When's the last time your children saw you in worship? No, 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 not going to worship, but in worship. 
The desire for recognition is the desire to live and feel from someone's recognition. So you are not living for someone to recognize you. You are living the life that God called you to live. Because let me tell you, if you don't hit live your life, who will? If you're seeking recognition from other people and concern yourself with other people, you are how you're judged by them, hear this, in the end, you're living from the judgment of a broken person instead of living from the truth of the one who created you. Thirdly and finally, I want you to have the courage to celebrate yourself. No, 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 I, I want you to, you throw parties for everybody else. Like you do, like, oh my God, like you throwing parties and all. When's the last time you took time to see who you are? I love when my son goes to the park, because my son goes to the park, they make up stories. Like they go to the park and the slide becomes like this big airplane. The, the little horsey becomes this massive horsey, and they're all they're just going crazy. And the basketball, the court is lava, and the ball is a big thing. You got to throw, and they create all these realities because they find ways at the park to just literally say, "I am so free. I'm going to create something." Trust in God means my creativity, my courageousness, my uniqueness is not rooted in someone's opinion about me. It's rooted in who God called in the first place. God did not make no mistake when He knitted you and made you like that. You like certain colors. God didn't make a mistake when he did that because your enemy is not a person. It's your arrogance and your self-control. So I want to challenge you to have access to the kingdom by reminding yourself that I don't have to hate who I was as a kid. And let me say this. Some of you can't hear this because you're mad at me because you're remembering certain things for you as a child. And maybe you need to hear this from me this morning. You have had a really good year. No, 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 no. I mean, like, I want to tell you, like, it's September, and you've had a decent, I know, like, life has hit you, but you've had a solid year so far. To every parent in the room, I know your, your child is not the next LeBron James, or maybe they are, but I want to tell you, it doesn't matter. You've done a really good job with your children. You've succeeded, and you failed, but failure is just an opportunity to see another opportunity for success. Jesus says, I want to build a kingdom. I want you a part of it. Get rid of your hate, your frustration against other people. Come to me. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Come to me. You've done a good job. Now let's see what else God has in store. 